You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So what we are talking about today, the message is entitled Christ the First Fruits. And we'll be sort of tying up the themes that we started with our Good Friday message and also with our Passover message the week before. And hopefully I'll show you how all of these things are connected. Father, now as we just turn our hearts towards your word, we pray that you will give us eyes to see ears to hear, Lord, and minds to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as Christians, I hopefully don't have to tell you that the resurrection is absolutely pivotal, central to our faith. If it wasn't for the resurrection, there's no point in us even being here in this church right now. But one of the things that we often do is we do not make the connection between the death of Christ and the resurrection in the way that we should do in the way that they are, in fact, fulfillments of the Jewish feasts. And we did that with Passover. Um, We don't often do that with the resurrection morning. I'm hopefully going to try and explain that a little bit to you this morning. But everything that happened on Friday, let's just make that connection clear on our minds. So this was the Passover. It was the day that the sacrificial lambs were slain in the temple, and it is also the day that Jesus Christ, our Passover, the Lamb of God, was killed on the cross for the sins of the world. Everything that he went up to in that entire week and ending in that agonizing prayer that we saw him pray in Gethsemane where he literally sweat drops of blood, all of his arrests, his trials, his beatings, his humiliations, his scourging, and only again to be rejected by his own people when Pilate offered Barabbas or Jesus to be released and his people rejected him again and they chose the criminal Barabbas and thus Jesus was sent away, scourged, and then crucified, made to carry that crossbeam up to the hill after this ordeal, and he could not do that himself, and then reaching the top, nailed to that cross by those Roman soldiers, and that was only really the physical elements. We know that on the cross he was for that brief moment separated from his father as all of the sins of the world were placed upon him, every sin that we have committed, every sin that every human has committed for all time, evermore, past and present and future, laid upon the shoulders of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was our sin. That is Friday. However, a dead saviour is no good to anyone. A dead saviour is, in fact, not a saviour. Now, this is where I quoted a, a, a famous sermon called It's Friday, but Sunday's Coming on our Good Friday service by an old preacher, Samuel Lockridge. Let me read you a few portions of this sermon. He says, it's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, his spirits burdened, but you see it's only Friday, Sunday's coming. It's Friday, he's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by the Father, left alone, dying, can nobody save him? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the earth trembles, the sky grows dark, my king yields his spirit. It's Friday, hope is lost, death has won, sin has conquered, and Satan's laughing. It's Friday, Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, a rock is rolled into place, but it's Friday, it's only Friday, Sunday is coming. It goes on and on, it's a wonderful sermon. What his point is, is that if you look at it just as Friday, it doesn't give us the victory that we need, but Friday is very much connected to Sunday, and when Sunday comes, the victory is complete. Christ is risen. Everything that Christ did on the cross is meaningless without Sunday, without the resurrection. When we as disciples are told to take up our cross by Jesus Christ, 
when we suffer in a broken world, when we look around the world and we see all the horrible things going on, all of it really is meaningless, except if we look at it in the light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the only hope for the world. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, your faith also is vain, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. And that's the point. Religious, tradition, formalism, rituals and rites will not save you one bit. Only the resurrected Lord will save you. That was Friday, and here we are on Sunday. Sunday came. This is why we're celebrating on a Sunday. Now, we often think that we... The church just chose Sunday because it happened to be the day that Christ was resurrected. No, in the plans of God, these days were chosen very specifically because it was a Sunday. We'll get into that a little bit more. But for 2,000 years since that day, here we are, his people, worshipping, celebrating, united by the fact that we know Christ rose again, born again by the power of the living Lord. Amen? We are in the midst of the biblical festival season, if I could call it that, and I want you to remember, just as we've seen with Passover, all of these feasts are, are actually described as being appointed times of the Lord. The Apostle Paul says they are mere shadows, but the substance is found in Christ. So as we look at the feasts of Israel, we should not be surprised when we see them giving us more details about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. On Palm Sunday, so that was last Sunday, we looked at Passover. And Friday, we looked at the cross and everything in between. The whole week of this last week, the Passion Week, as they call it, of Jesus' life, is really the outplaying of Passover. And we, we talked about that. Remember how the lamb was selected on Palm Sunday, and then it went through a, a process where people would investigate it. And then we saw that after that, Jesus, he went into a really series of disputes with the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, and no one could find a fault with him. And it says at the end of that time, they did not answer him a word. This was the spotless lamb unblemished. We looked at all of these, um, this type of Passover going on. And then we know that on the exact time that the Passover lambs, the, the national Passover lamb sacrifice was being killed in the temple, Jesus Christ was dying on the cross. This is how God orders history. It's amazing. Now, we, we are aware of that connection. We remember it every time we take communion. But the one that does not get as much connection is what we are, in fact, celebrating here on Easter Sunday this morning, because this was another Jewish feast, and it was called the Feast of First Fruits. In Leviticus 23, when God told Israel their calendar, he had Passover, the very next day was unleavened bread, and then the third day after was the Feast of First Fruits. So these things were already put into motion many, many years ago, long before Jesus was ever, ever on this earth. We knew that he would have to be resurrected on a Sunday. Let me read to you this from Leviticus 23, verse 9. You can turn there if you have your Bible. The Feast of first fruits, And this comes right after the descriptions for Passover, but I won't read that now. Leviticus 23, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. 
And now on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, one year old, without defect for a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall then be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering of fire by the Lord with a smoothing aroma, with its drink offering a fourth of a hin of wine. Until this same day you have brought in the offering of your God, you shall eat neither bread nor roasted grain nor new growth. It is to be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It's a much longer passage, but that's the, the main bit there. Let me summarize it for you. Basically, on the day after the Sabbath of Passover, you are to bring your offering of first fruits. Now, the day after the Sabbath of Passover, where's the day after the Sabbath, was Sunday. You see, Sunday was already set apart in the Jewish calendar, pointing us to an event that would happen thousands of years later from when they got this, and it would happen on Easter morning. The, the priests basically had to bring the first fruits of the harvest. So this is the first crop that would be shown. They would reap it, and they were not, they'd been waiting for it for a long time, but they were not allowed to eat it. They had to bring it straight to the temple, and they had to do an offering, and basically it's giving thanks to the Lord for the crop that is to come. But that was not the main crop. That was just the first things that you would see, the first tiny part of the crop. And it also says that until that offering was done, and accepted by the Lord, no one was allowed to eat any of the food. You could not benefit from it until it had been offered to the Lord and been accepted. So the point of this offering was that it was the first. But what does the first signify? That there is a whole lot more to come, you see. The first fruits of the harvest mean that, in due course, the whole of the harvest is going to come. And because they thank God for the first, they can enjoy the rest of the harvest and God will bless that. This is what the priest was doing. He was thanking God for what was to come. And again, the calendar here of Israel is amazing. On the Feast of first fruits, when this, this small bit of offering was brought to the temple, it started a countdown, 49 days countdown, if you're aware of this. And after 49 days, another feast of Israel was proclaimed where the full harvest would be brought to the Lord. They would reap everything else. And if you don't know, after 49 days, after today, that is Pentecost. All of these things, this divine calendar that we look as maybe some sort of ancient thing that just the Jews take care of, all of it laid down in advance for us so that we can learn the ministry of Jesus Christ. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, resurrection, 49 days later, the full harvest, Pentecost, 3,000 saved, millions saved every year since by the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is risen. Amen. Christ is risen. Amen. So that is a little bit of our Jewish calendar there. All of this is connected and this is not just me making this. Again, as Paul made the connection with Passover in his writings in 1 Corinthians, he also makes the connections with Christ, the first fruits. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 to 24. He writes, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So what this is saying is that Yeshua's resurrection, Jesus's resurrection, was the first fruit wave offering before the Lord, indicating that this is just a start, there is much more to come. Now for the Israelites, obviously they were dealing with real crops at this time. Spiritually in Jesus Christ, it's, he's talking about souls here. 
Jesus Christ was the first of the resurrection to life. There are two resurrections, the resurrection to life and the resurrection to death. You are going to be part of one of those, regardless of whether you believe in Jesus Christ or not. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be part of the resurrection to life. And you know and you can have that guarantee because the first fruit has already been reaped. It's been offered before the Lord. It's already been accepted before the Lord. This is what this whole festival is pointing us to, towards. But what is the more to come? The more to come is us. The more to come is the church. Everyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ becomes born again. Your resurrection is guaranteed. Christ the first fruits, then those who are in the order who are Christ at his coming. This is what we're looking at here with first fruits. This is also how we know that death has been defeated. And even now, although we experience physical death in that sense, it does say in the Bible that we will never die, even if we do die. What it's getting at here is that death for the Christian is not the same. Because Christ the first fruits has already raised, he's defeated death. And because of that first fruit offering, the rest of the harvest is guaranteed. And if we have faith in Christ, we're part of the rest of the harvest. That's what this festival is pointing us towards. So it's just as important as Passover. We focus a lot on Passover, but Passover and first fruits go together. Those three days were consecutive. That was for a reason. This is what we have here. And how do we know that this offering was acceptable? Remember, first fruits starts the countdown, doesn't it? What happened on those all the way back to the first century after the resurrection? That 49-day countdown to the harvest came, and then God gave his spirit on Pentecost to the church. And the spirit is described as being a deposit, an inheritance, a down payment on the future harvest of the church. Listen to the way uh, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians. In him you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. What's our inheritance there? That we will be glorified with the Lord. The Spirit is a pledge that that full harvest is to come. It says, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. There's no better place to be than in Christ Jesus, the risen, glorified Lord, the first fruits that guarantees that we will be resurrected and glorified with him. You see just how much all of this is in the New Testament. We miss it, but it's such a wonderful thing. The giving of the Spirit was the divine seal. Everything that had gone before, these, this, this momentous week where Christ had been crucified, the festival of unleavened bread, and all these things had been fulfilled at this time, it was acceptable to God. We know this because he accepted that offering of the first fruits and he gave us his spirit as a pledge that that would again lead to the full harvest. And I would again say you have no hope of really properly understanding the New Testament unless you see it in light of these feasts. Everything Jesus did is connected to one of these feasts in many ways. It's a fascinating study to get your head around. That's all I'm going to do on that today. I want us to turn to a text now, Luke chapter 24, and we'll go back and look at these first uh, Easter Sunday. Or the fulfillment of first fruit, I should say. So Luke 24, we're going to read quite a lot of text, but I'll, I'll make some comments as we go through it. It says, On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Dramatic statement there. You'll never find the tomb of the Lord Jesus with anyone in it anyway. People have tried and people have claimed. They've all been disproven. 
So the first day of the week, Sunday morning, this faithful group, it's talking about this faithful group of women that we have here. If you read the, the previous passages, they're mentioned later. They are bringing spices to finish anointing the body. The whole thing happened in such a rush and a shock that the anointing of the body, which was the custom of those times, was not done properly. And these faithful women there are coming to finish the job. I'd imagine they're still reeling from the events of the last 48 hours in their lives. Their Lord was taken from them, crucified, brutally, humiliated, hung naked on a cross, beaten and bloodied, and he died that death in front of the nation. I'm not sure we can really appreciate what the emotions they would be going through as they made their journey to a finish anointing this bloody, beaten corpse as they would be expecting to find at this time. But when they get there, the stone is rolled away. And as we always like to say, preachers, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away so that they could go in. The entrance, the door was made open through the sacrifice resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. He is risen indeed, amen. How I love these verses. If you're a believer, if you know the Lord, they really should just fill your heart with a, with a sense of wonder and a sense of awe as we contemplate what actually happened here this Easter morning and what it means for us today. And if you could imagine what these faithful women were feeling right now, from the depth of emotion they must have been in grief and despair and loss, to now just, I'd imagine, absolute confusion. What has happened? Someone's stolen the body. What is going on? Where is our Lord? Could it be? And then probably remembering all of these things that they've had told to them over, over the years. But then they have these visitors there in dazzling clothing. Obviously, these are the angels telling them. And angels, it's always a, a fearful thing. And they're, they fall to the ground. But the men say to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? What a statement is that? And it is a good reminder for us today. Our faith is not just history. It is past, it is present, it is also future. Most importantly, our faith is based in a person who is alive. And if he's not alive, we above all people are to be pitied because it's a waste. The king is alive. Now, we need to take this lesson even further. We do not search for spiritual experiences among the dead, among things like religious traditions, among quasi-spiritual experiences that hold no life. Among the idols, the images, the sacraments, many of the things that the church has sought to find life in is in fact nothing but death. You will not find him amongst the best philosophies of men, the loftiest ideals of the most intelligent men in the world, the highest laws of the land, the best governments in the world, not on the thrones of this world, not even in the deep powers of darkness in this world, not in the power or might of armies of men, none of these things, you will only find it in the resurrected Lord where the power of his resurrection is displayed through the new birth, through becoming a Christian, that is when you worship the Lord in spirit and truth. When corruptible has put on incorruptible, when death is defeated once and for all. At the empty tomb now, these women were about to realize what had happened. Christ is risen. And the angels now told them, he is not here, for he is risen. And this is again, what a wonderful statement this is. This really should be everything for us. All of our hopes and dreams, our pains, frustrations in this world are wrapped up in this little statement. 
everything we do here, why we come here every week, why we follow the Lord, he is risen. That is why. That is why. Now, if you were here for Good Friday, I summed up the message of the cross by Jesus' last words. One word to telestai. It is finished, translation. If you put these two things together, you have a pretty good summary of the entire Bible. It is finished. He is risen. He is not here. He is risen. That's it. Those two small statements. Simplest theology, but yet the most profound theology we could ever have. It is finished. He is not here. He is risen. Verse 6, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now I like that. Remember. They're told to remember his words. And this again, what a lesson for us. They'd heard these words. Jesus had said that he must be handed over. The prophecies had talked about him being handed over to be killed for the sins of the nation. But in amongst all the excitement, the drama of having him there, the emotions that they were going through as, and probably the confusion that they suffered as he was arrested and all these different things were unplaying before their eyes, they forgot. And aren't we not the same? Often, you've probably been through it, you're going through struggles in life you kind of know the solution is somewhere to be found in the teachings of Jesus, but yet we don't search it out. Sometimes we just completely forget to go to Jesus and we go to the other things that give us comfort and security. They were told to remember, and on those words, all of these teachings of Jesus started coming back to them. They started to remember. The words of Christ about his resurrection caused their hope to be reborn at this moment. And this hope then caused them to do something, to rush into action. Verse 8, they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. This is what the hope of the resurrection does. Reignites your hope, and then they wanted to go and tell everyone about it. So they ran back to the others and they said, this is what has happened. This is what the hope of the resurrection does for us as Christians. It energizes us to service. Because like I said, we're not interested in getting people to agree with our system of ethics necessarily as a standalone concept. We don't want people to agree that Christianity and everything that people associate with that is it. All we're interested in is getting people to the living, resurrected Lord. That, that is the message. Everything else comes from that. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Because Sunday did come, we have boldness in our speech, and we are not above all men to be pitied. In fact, we are the men who have the answer to all the world's problems, men and women, the body of Christ. We have the answers. It is the resurrection, the life, the one who defeated death. It's elsewhere called the hope of glory, the hope of salvation. We are told not to grieve as those who are lost and have no hope. We have the hope of eternal life, the blessed hope of the resurrection, as it is called. It should be at the forefront of our faith. And if not, then we will not be working and walking in the power of the resurrection. And it is only that that really will draw men to new life. Amen. Verse 10. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, 
and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. So now we're introduced to this lovely group of women. Mary Magdalene, she's the one who Jesus cast out seven demons of. Joanna, again, uh, in Luke, we're told that Joanna was one of the ladies who actually supported Jesus' ministry. She was a woman of means, and she used her resources to support his ministry. A great act. If, you're in, if you know ministry, you need those people who support the ministry. Often go without any praise or applause, but they get the whole thing going. Joanna was one of these women. This would have been a safe place, providing for Jesus' needs and supporting probably all of the apostles as they traveled, as they taught. That what, that's what she did. And then we go on and on. We see that Peter here ran to the tomb only to find it empty and the grave clothes inside. And <laughs> Sarah's not in here. I can share this with you. This morning she was reading one of the, the other narratives of the Gospels and she, she noted, she said, oh, do you know what I love? What stands out to me at this passage? And I was like, oh, I'm going to get a, okay, yeah, this is going to be great. Go on, tell me, tell me. And she said, I love the way, it doesn't mention it here, but in one of the parallel passages, it says that Jesus... When they came to the tomb, they found the linen folded and left there. So she said, he must have been resurrected and then decided to fold it. And then she just held her stare at me. And I, and I was like, how can this turn into some way of making, making a point about that? But women are very resourceful like that. And theologically, she was right. It does say that. So I had no argument. But Peter ran to the tomb and he found these grave clothes inside. And everything that the women were saying must have now resonated in his heart too. Verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Everything that had taken place. This Passover was a unique Passover in Jerusalem. Everyone at this time had heard about Jesus, the miracles that he was doing. The Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, were investigating him. The people were waiting for the official legal decision on whether he was the Messiah or not. People would have been flocking to Jerusalem more than any other year to try and see this ministry, uh, the ministry of Jesus. He rode in on a donkey, fulfilling those prophecies, proclaiming himself to be king. He then went to the tables, which would, this would not have been done in any other year, turned over the tables of the money changers and did all of those things. He debated with all of these different people. They could not find anything wrong with him. Do you imagine that all the, this, the messianic expectation would have been at fever peak at this time? This is, what, this is what it's talking about. And these two blessed disciples on the road to Emmaus are discussing this. Everything would have been so high. And as we see with the women too, all of a sudden they're deflated because it did not end how they expected it to end. They expected it to end with the king there setting up his kingdom in glory. They didn't quite fully understand the program of our Lord. This is what they're talking about here. They were struggling with the gravity of it all, the emotion, the loss would have been too much. And then verse 15, while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened in these days? So it, it almost appears here that Jesus 
kind of incognito, joins these two men walking, probably a, a few steps behind for a little bit, and seems to be listening to their conversation. And then he teases out of them uh, a conversation to get them to divulge what they're talking about. And they, it, it's interesting to note, they react startled that there's someone in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened. And this just shows you how wide everything was, uh, the, what I was talking about. Everyone was expecting the Messiah, this Jesus, to do what they thought he would do, and it hadn't transpired like they thought. And then Jesus, he, uh, um, so they say, how come you don't know these things? And then verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word and in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him to sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel, Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Now, that casual reply of Jesus is probably sharing his sense of humor in many ways there. What things? What are you talking about? Again, he's teasing, he's a very clever way of teasing a conversation out of someone. And then notice what they say, we were hoping. We were hoping it was him who was going to redeem Israel. And in that, they were thinking about setting up the kingdom, being the king. They hadn't understand that he had redeemed Israel through the Passover sacrifice, but they had a disappointed hope. Their hope had been let down because it wasn't entirely accurate. Verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. So they said they'd heard rumors of resurrection. And again, if you could imagine what they were feeling like, they'd, they'd seen him beaten and brutalized beyond all belief, dead, buried, but now some people were starting to say he was alive again, and they probably were not letting themselves believe it, and I don't think you really would either, would you, in this situation, until you'd seen it. They'd heard the rumors, though. Verse 25, and he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, I see this as a gentle rebuke by Jesus here. He's basically saying, if you had really understood if your faith was really based on all the scriptures that had been revealed in Moses, then you would have known that Messiah must be handed over and die for the sins of the people. He had to suffer for the sins of the world, and then he would be resurrected, and then the glory would come that you're waiting for. He was thinking of passages like Isaiah 53 that talk about him being bruised and beaten and rejected of men and, and dying for the sins of the nation. Daniel 9.26 talks about the Messiah being cut off but not for himself, dying for other people. So what does he do? What does Jesus do? He doesn't just continue rebuking them for being foolish. He instructs them. And this is why I love this Emmaus Road passage. He expounds the scriptures to them. This is the first post-resurrection Bible study ever done, and it was conducted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, you've often heard the question, if you could go back into one time in history, where would you go? I would give anything to be able to hear this study. Just to walk along that road and hear him, like thinking what scriptures would he use, how would he explain them? Would he talk about the Feast of Israel? Would he talk about the tabernacle and how it all pointed to him? Would it just be Isaiah 53? 
You just don't know. But in his short period of time as they were walking, he obviously did what he did. He expanded the scriptures. He showed uh, that the Messiah, he went through the whole process of the Messiah's ministry from the scriptures because it's all in there. And verse 28, and they approached the village where they were going and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him saying, stay with us for it is getting toward evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Amen. So some people obviously say, that, oh, this Christ is being deceptive here. He wanted them to think, again, nonsense, just doesn't understand the narrative. This is just a very clever way. You could imagine Jesus just almost saying, oh, there's the door, by then, taking a few steps further. And they're like, no, come in. Something in them did not want to leave this man. They'd had such a, a riveting conversation along the way. They'd explained to him what they thought had happened and he'd opened up the scriptures and they'd heard something really that probably like they'd never heard in all their lives before. He had reignited their hope, kindled the fire afresh in their lives, created two more witnesses to his resurrection in the process. Verse 32, they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. And they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen, and he has appeared to Simon. I love this phrase again, the burning heart of the apostles on the Emmaus, of the disciples on the Emmaus road. Now, this is interesting, and I want to leave us really with this thought as we think on this. A time when their hopes had been, well, ruined, basically. They, they were, in, they were in, a, in a stage of hopelessness at this. Everything they thought was going to happen had not transpired. And the narrative is very particular here. If you notice at the beginning of this conversation, it, it highlights that they're walking away from Jerusalem. Everything before that would have been going up to Jerusalem for this festival period to see all these things. All of this geography is important in the Bible. But now their hope is gone. Christ has died, as far as they know. And they're walking, you see them walking away from Jerusalem, leaving the temple, leaving the glory, leaving all that messianic expectation. Their hopes are dashed. They're heading back to their lives now. Just normal, what they're going to do. Nothing has changed. It's just the same. They'll probably be back next year. These are all the things that are going down. They're deflated. They're confused. What was it that they needed to stir that holy fire, give them that burning heart in their soul? Now, yes, you could say it was the resurrected Lord. And of course, that's true. But what I also find interesting, it's not some new thing. It wasn't some overly emotional experience. It was a walk along the road and an explanation of the scriptures. That's it. That's what Jesus did. He expounded in the scriptures all the things concerning himself to them. Expound is where we get the word exposition from. That is the style of teaching that we do here, expositional teaching. That's what it means, to draw out the scriptures and let them speak for themselves. Christ gave them a vision of himself in all his fullness, but it was from the scriptures. And this testifies to us that the Lord has granted us all that we need in relation to understanding him in the scriptures through the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Lord. This is a reminder that all those prophecies had been fulfilled. It reminds us that God's word is true and it reminds us that Jesus is alive. Now we do well to remember this when you feel that fire getting cold in your own soul. It happens to us all. If it hasn't happened to you, it will happen to you at some point. The world comes to bear on you. 
something will happen in church, something will happen with someone else, and you'll, you'll grow that coldness of heart. You can usually feel when it first comes, and then you end up justifying it and move on, and it can get worse and worse. What is the remedy to that? Take a fresh look at the Bible through the Holy Spirit with the resurrected Lord. Expound those things that are teaching of him. It's one of the greatest cures for all those things in this world. And this is really what we see going on here. A sad heart transformed into a burning heart through the exposition of the word of God. I love that. And what do we see now in the narrative? Notice, this is crucial. Remember, at the beginning, they're leaving it all behind, moving away from Jerusalem. They're walking along the road. They lodge with this person. All of this happens. And then what does the very next thing say? They now change direction and they want to head back to Jerusalem. And this is very crucial here because Jerusalem, obviously, all the symbolism that comes with Jerusalem, you meet the resurrected Lord and they know they've got to go back to Jerusalem. So they head back to all of the apostles there and they tell them and confirm and witness to the things that they've seen. Meeting the resurrected Lord will change your direction in life. Is this not re what repentance means? To stop, turn around, acknowledge the way you're going is wrong and realign yourself with God's word in many ways. This is what it means. And we see this literally being played out for us on the road to Emmaus. It's a wonderful story. Now, this is the cure for the troubled soul to pray that the resurrected Christ would meet you and ask that he would open the scriptures to you to reveal himself to you all the more. He did it for those two disciples on the Emmaus road. He continues to do it for us today as we study the word of God because he is forever risen and glorified. And as the first fruits, he is our guarantee that one day we will be risen and glorified with him. Amen. Amen. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen.